Okay, according to Apple, it's seven o'clock, so I'm going to begin. You all can please be encouraged to finishing up your meal, and um, if I could get your attention, we're going to begin with our first class in this class on C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. And as we begin, I'm going to introduce the, the structure of the class for just a second, and then I'm going to get to this class. So the first thing I want to do is just do a few logistics. So every class will begin with prayer. Um, those of you who haven't heard me before, I have a reputation of people feeling like they take a sip from a fire hydrant. And if you think that's true in other areas, just wait till tonight. Because there's very few things I'm more enthusiastic about than C.S. Lewis. The class after tonight will be much more interactive. You will need your book, which I'm hoping everybody either purchased or brought their own copy from home. You won't need your book tonight, but starting next week, you will need your book. And the only thing I want to say about the book which I don't usually do, but I want to make sure to say it with this. This is not a very long book, but it's a very packed book. And it's not like a lot of other books. And I rec would recommend that you read it slowly and one chapter at a time, which I almost never say. But this is one of the C.S. Lewis books for which that's very important. And you want to make sure to read the preface a lot of Americans, you know this, they read, they just go straight to chapter one. <laughs> in England, when you write a book, you actually write introductions and prefaces, and they actually have importance. And C.S. Lewis never writes a book without a preface or an introduction that's not important, as well as an introductory quotation from somebody significant, which is also important. And if you want something really interesting to do, one of the best ways to read this book is to read it with a friend and to read it out loud. It's actually one of the best things to do because it forces you to take the dialogue and the points that he's making with utmost seriousness and kind of slow down the film. So that's just by way of suggestion. You can read it however you want, but I would recommend to read it slowly in one chapter at a time. The last thing I want to say is all the classes are being taped. So if you like the class, one of the simplest things you can do, which would really help us at Holy Cross, is you can say, I like the class. Why don't you watch the tape and come next week? That's one of the simplest things you can do as a Christian, as an active community, to reach out to somebody at work or one of your friends and get them interested. And this is a really engaging topic. So if you miss a class or if you have to come late to a class, don't worry about it. We're taping them all specifically so that you'll have all the material. All right, everybody with me so far? All right, now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do tonight, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to try to do it. We all together so far? All right, so the, I found the magic marker that actually writes in some readable form. So C.S. Lewis, three topics, his life, his theology in general, and then some detail on his eschatology. Now, when you get with theologians, they use these loaded words, and that word eschatology may be new to you. It means, literally, the last things, and it's the term in Christian theology for what you and I sometimes call final arrangements. That is to say, death, judgment, heaven and hell, the resurrection of the dead, the immortality of the soul, etc., etc., etc. Right? So that whole area is where we're going to be finding ourselves. And if we have time, I want to say something about the great divorce. And I'm going to go for an hour and then I'm going to stop and we're going to take questions. And the questions, the only thing I want to request of you when we do questions and dialogue, especially tonight, is... I'm happy to answer any question you have, but 
the purpose of this class is to ask questions on the topic at hand. So if you want to know about this, the toes of the beast in the book of Daniel, that's great, but I'll, I'll answer that one later. We want questions on tonight's topic. So I'm, I'm interested in anything that you are unclear about or anything that's provoked you tonight. So when I stop at 8 o'clock, for those of you who want to stay, we're going to beat it around for another half an hour, and there will be lots to beat around. All right, everybody with me so far? All right, here comes the sip from the fire hydrant. Ready, set, go. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your presence with us, for your love for us. We thank you that the very hairs on our head are numbered in your sight. So great is your love for us. We thank you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, especially for today and for your preservation and grace that has enabled each one of us to reach this point in our lives today and to be together on this night. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us an openness to what you have for us, that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts, the ears of our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, to hear what you have to say, to see what you want us to see, so that we might be encouraged and built up in our faith and become more effective disciples. In Jesus' precious name, amen. C.S. Lewis lived from 1894 until 1963 in one of the more amazing ironies of history, which you may or may not know, he died on November 22nd, 1963, which means that C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley, and John F. Kennedy all died on the same day. One of the most amazing ironies in all of history. The great Roman Catholic theologian, philosopher, and apologist Peter Kreft actually has a book about a dialogue in the next life between John Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley precisely because they all died on the same day. He was the greatest apologist of the 20th century. He was on the cover of Time magazine on September 8, 1947. He was a scholar of the first order. He was a philosophy tutor at University College, Oxford in 1924, and he was a fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford from 1925 until 1954. And then he went to Cambridge where he was the founding chair of medieval and Renaissance literature from 1954 until his death in 1963. He was a storyteller, he was a story writer, and he was an apologist. He wrote more than 30 books in over 30 languages that sold countless millions of copies. And he was born not in England, it's important that we all know this as we begin, but in Ireland before the partition, for those of you who know your Irish history. His father was a solicitor. His mother was the daughter of a Church of Ireland minister and the great-granddaughter of not one but two Anglican bishops. And his older brother, Warren, whose name is Warney, was two years older than he was. Now, I want to break down his life into three observational parts for just a moment. First, I want to talk about a life of hardship, struggle, and suffering. So we're in this section, part one. You all with me so far? All right, so I just want to say a word. One of the things that always strikes me when I study Lewis and look at his life is he went through so much pain. It's a remarkable life full of incredible pain and suffering. His father was a mercurial mess. He was a really good lawyer. He was also an emotional mess of a person in every sense of what that was. His mother got sick when he was very young, but before even that happened, he had a dog that was his love of his life. And um, you're, you're looking at a dog person. We have two in the house 
right now. His dog, Jaxi, died when he was four. And he initially, actually, after that, only was, would allow anybody in the house, including his friends, to call him Jaxi because his dog died and he missed him so much. And he was known for the rest of his life by Jack after that because of the death of his dog, age four. His mother died when he was nine. And for those of you who know his uh, children's books really well, the character of Diggory in Magician's Nephew is absolutely critical to give you a window into the kind of pain and suffering that Lewis endured as a boy. He has this incredibly powerful image of this house, and there's all this, this whispering. And the only thing that he sort of remembers is his, his mother was always behind the door, and she was never doing very well, and they were always whispering, and he could never go in because she was so sick, and he lost her when she was nine, when he was nine at that young age of cancer. His dad had a nervous breakdown as a result of that event and shipped his two boys off to private school in England, which was a total disaster because the school that he sent them to was absolutely horrible. One of the really painful things to read is Lewis's letter back to his parents about going to England, which Lewis absolutely hated. He hated England. It was a terrible place with these terrible people, with these terrible accents. And the person who ran the school, he said to his father in more than one letter, was crazy and could please let me come home, he would say. This is a boy of like 10 years old writing to his dad. Now, you all know that kids can exaggerate about school, so his dad would have none of it. Actually, Lewis was right. Uh, A year after Lewis was withdrawn from the school, which wasn't long thereafter, the guy actually was institutionalized for actually being crazy. As if all that wasn't enough, within months of entering Oxford in 1917, he was a member of the British Army heading to France in World War I. On his 19th birthday, November 29th, 1917, Lewis arrived at the front line of the Battle of the Somme in France, where he experienced trench warfare for the first time. On April 15th, 1918, as the 1st Battalion Somerset Light Infantry assaulted the village of Ries du Vinage, In the midst of the German spring offensive, Lewis was with two friends. They saw the shell coming, and his two friends stepped in front of them and were basically blown to bits. He was severely wounded. It marked him for the rest of his life. He spent an enormous amount of time after that in the hospital, and he said that he was homesick and depressed. Still not done, as if all that isn't enough. His best friend at the time was someone named Ed... Edward Courtney Francis Moore, better known as Patty Moore. They had become fast friends, as you often do, no atheists in foxholes. You have to have uh, something to do, so you talk to the people that you're next to in the infantry, and Lewis became close friends with Patty, and they made a sort of a pact, an agreement between the two of them, that if either one of them died in the war, the other one would promise to go back to England and take care of their family. Patty died not long after one of their conversations, and Lewis for the rest of his life, took care of Patty Moore's mother. And you've got to have this picture of this very busy Oxford Don in England. And if you read his diary or some of his letters, one of the things you'll see, for example, is he goes to Mrs. Moore's house and does the wash as, as, a, as an example of his sort of normal day. He teaches at Oxford, then he goes to Mrs. Moore's house and does it because he made a pact. So for all of his life, he acted as a servant to Mrs. Moore. <clears throat> And for the rest of his life as a busy Oxford Don, he had primary responsibility for her and her daughter in terms of the way that he functioned. Two other notes just in closing so that you get a sense of how much pain 
Lewis actually went through in his life. One is, he taught at Oxford, I should have you guess, for 30 years. Guess what he never got? Tenure. You do know that academics care about these things. When he became a Christian and he began to write popular books, he was sneered at by fellow faculty for being a, quote, popularizer, and he could never, ever get the respect of the rest of the faculty to the degree to which it was clearly deserved. He was such an amazingly brilliant scholar that one of the many things at a very early age, roughly 30, he was asked to write the entire volume for the history of English literature in the Oxford history of the English language for the 16th century. That, that volume at age 30. That's, that's like a lifetime achievement that you get asked to do when you're 60. He got asked to do it in his 30s, and yet he couldn't get tenure in Oxford. And he only gets tenure at Cambridge because, as you'll hear in just a second, his friend J.R.R. Tolkien intervenes. One last note about the pain in Lewis's life. For those of you who know the movie Shadowlands, you probably know where I'm heading. Toward the end of his life, he's corresponding with a woman whose name is Joy Davidman Gresham. She's of Jewish background, is converted to Christianity from atheism. She comes to England, and they have this sort of great intellectual banter of a friendship. And it happens that she wants to stay in England. She's got her two boys with her. She's divorced from a horribly abusive and alcoholic husband. And in order for her to stay in England, Lewis reluctantly agrees to enter into a civil marriage with her on April 23rd, 1956. So it was, just a, it was really a matter of convenience, and he was actually just trying to help her get on with her life, and she didn't want to go back to America. She just wanted to stay in England. So as a courtesy and as a grace, he agreed to do this. Of course, then, then they fell in love, and he had a great, great time with her, and then he wanted to marry her. The only problem was at that point in England, uh, to marry somebody in the Church of England who was divorced was a heroic and problematic matter, to be sure. And it took an incredible amount of um, maneuvering for that to take place, but it actually happened in 1957. Unfortunately for Lewis, not long thereafter, she got cancer. Pretty serious cancer. There's a moment in Lewis's own life where he begins actually to contract the symptoms of her cancer in his own body. So sympathetic and deeply in love with her was he. She actually has a period of remarkable remission in 1960 for a period of time, and she and Warney, that's the older brother Warren, and Lewis have this great time in the, in the house where they live in Oxford. It's one of the sort of sunnier parts of his life. But she re, it recurs, and she dies on July 13, 1960. So that relationship, which is only four years long, and he was only really legally married in the official sense for roughly three, goes down the drain thanks to cancer. When he writes the book about that, which he's furious at God about, which is called A Grief Observed. He's so mad at God, and he's in so much pain, he doesn't even write the book under his own name. He writes it under the name N.W. Clerk. No accident. It's republished under C.S. Lewis in 1964. But it just gives you a sense of the amount of pain that he was in. He was afraid of what people might think, because in that book, if you've ever read it, he's so hostile to God for taking his wife, which is the way that he sees it at the time, that it's one big um, launching argument and tirade against God from beginning to end. And he was so concerned that it might ruin other people's faith that he didn't even publish it under his own name. So the first thing I want to make sure that you understand is life is difficult. I've said this to some of you before, but I want to make sure that you remember it. One of my favorite sayings of A.W. Tozer is this, it is doubtful 
whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. That's one of the mysteries of life. Please note the way that he phrases that. We're not supposed to seek pain, but part of what it means to live into the mystery of life as a Christian is to somehow allow God to turn one's pain and suffering into something good, and that is incredibly hard to do. And one of the least appreciated things about Lewis is how much he managed to achieve in a life of phenomenal pain and suffering the whole way through, all the way to the end. One of the things that always gets me, and I was thinking about this this week, is when he finally gets back from the sum and all that battle in France, and he's somnolescing in London, his dad, you remember his dad, the one, the lawyer who was a basket case and shipped his children off to a dysfunctional boarding school, his dad never visited him at the hospital in London. You know who did? Patty Moore's mother. (laughs) That was one of the reasons Lewis had such great respect for her. She came all the way down from Oxford to visit him at the hospital in London, but his, his dad never visited. I tried to put myself in the situation of being a wounded warrior after World War I in a hospital alone, depressed, homesick in London, and my dad didn't even visit me one time. So illustrative of his life. All right, we all together so far? So first of all, a life of pain and suffering, and he somehow manages to allow God to turn all that around. Second, a life of fullness. One of the striking things about Lewis, amazing man that he is, is the sheer breadth of experiences that he has at a macro level. Think about it. Oxford, Cambridge, World War I, World War II, Ireland, England, France, singleness, marriage, a student, a teacher, a writer, and on and on. It's a remarkable breadth of experience in life that he goes through. And I want to highlight tonight just one, and that is his experience of friendship, which is terribly underrated in our time. He was close friends especially with J.R.R. Tolkien and a man named Charles Williams, who may or may not be known to you, a Scottish writer. And they founded an institution of gathering scholars called the Inklings that met at the Bird and the Babe, which is the uh, inside Oxford terminology for one of the pubs called the Eagle and the Child, where they met every Tuesday for two decades between the 1930s and 1949. So basically for 20 years, They met every week on Tuesday at a pub in Oxford, and they sat there and read manuscripts to one another, and they became close friends. And for those of you who've heard my sermon on this, you may remember the remarkable observation Lewis makes. He's really close friends with Lewis and and Tolkien and Williams. It's kind of a triumvirate, the three of them. And all of a sudden, um, sadly, uh, Charles Williams dies, and Lewis says in one of his remarkable insights, typical of him, he says... He was After that, he was really bothered, and he couldn't figure out why, and he suddenly realized that all of his interactions with Tolkien were different after Charles Williams died, and he couldn't figure out why, and all of a sudden he realized that the problem was that Charles Williams brought out aspects of J.R.R. Tolkien that he didn't. And so he lost not only a friend, but he lost what his friend did for his other friend, which is just an example of the kind of devotion that these friends have. And what I want to make sure to remark on tonight is the remarkable fruitfulness of the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien. Here's William Flattery in Christianity Today. Tolkien, he says, was instrumental in Lewis getting the Cambridge position. Lewis was appointed to his professorship at Cambridge on October 1, 1954. Ironically, even though the position was created specifically for Lewis, Lewis showed very little interest in it. 
His friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and many others, all played a role in getting Lewis to go for the new position, but Tolkien deserves special mention. In Alistair McGrath's book, C.S. Lewis, A Life, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet. How's that for a good title? A Life, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet. Lewis twice declined the offer at Cambridge, and Tolkien just wouldn't let the matter go. He sought clarification from Lewis about why he refused the offer. Can you imagine refusing a brand new chair in medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge specifically designed for you? Not once, but twice. Lewis thought he would have to move from his home of over two decades and live in Cambridge. And Tolkien said, no, you don't need to do that. And there was a train at the time, not true today, but there was actually a train that went directly from Oxford to Cambridge. So only thanks to Tolkien not only creating the position, but pressuring Lewis into taking the position after he declined it, not once but twice, does Lewis actually get the job. That was when he got tenure. That's a friendship that really bears fruit. But what I didn't know until I researched for this class and was delighted to find out is it also worked the other way around. As you may have heard, they were friends for a long time, and one of the ways that they were friends were they would read these manuscripts to each other at the Inklings at, the, at that pub in Oxford, and they were very critical of each other. Um, one of the things I always get a kick out of is Tolkien hated the Chronicles of Narnia. Too superficial, not deep enough, not convincing, so on and so forth. But um, <clears throat> Tolkien gave The Hobbit to Lewis before he published it, five years before he published it, and uh, Lewis said, this is really good, you should, you should keep writing this. So he started writing the Lord of the Rings, and he didn't think it was any good, so he stopped. And Lewis gave feedback to Tolkien after he stopped. He said, why did you stop? This is really good. So Tolkien rewrote the first three chapters of the Lord of the Rings and ultimately wrote the book, all three books. It wasn't published till the 1950s, but very few know that had it not been for C.S. Lewis, the Lord of the Rings would probably never have seen the light of day. Tolkien wrote in one of his letters to Lewis, listen to this, I owe to his encouragement the fact that I persevered and eventually finished The Lord of the Rings. Pretty remarkable friendship. One gets the other a Cambridge tenured professorship. The other talks the other into writing one of the most famous trilogies of all time. Not bad. (laughs) Thirdly, first, a life of suffering and pain. Second, a life of enormous breadth, including especially friendship, and finally, a life of learning. I don't really think most people are aware of how much of a genius C.S. Lewis really was. If you look up genius in the dictionary, it says a person who is exceptionally intelligent or creative, either generally or in some particular respect. But we need to pause here so that we get the full weight of what we're talking about when we're talking about CSOs. If you had genius and you make a graph within genius, so just do a graph of genius, and you get to the outlier, that's where Lewis is. At Oxford, if you're really good in a particular subject, you get the highest grade, which is called a first. We really don't have an American equivalent of a first, but probably the closest thing is to graduate summa cum laude. For those of you who are into this sort of thing, you may know what that means. Lewis didn't get one first or two firsts. Lewis got three. A triple first. In honor moderations, Greek and Latin literature, by the way, that's you have to write the exam in Greek and Latin and be examined orally also in Greek and Latin. A first in greats, which is philosophy and ancient history. 
and a first in history. Astounding. His own students would regularly recall events during tutorials, which happened, for those of you who know how the Oxford system works, it's kind of ghastly for me to even contemplate this. You'd have, you'd have an assignment, you know, write such and such an essay, and then you'd actually have to go to C.S. Lewis, if he was your tutor, you'd have to go to his office and read your essay out loud to C.S. Lewis sitting there. That was, that was your regular undergraduate experience, which was incredibly um, galling and painful for Lewis, I'm sure. But what, what I always, what, what, what I always, I can't imagine having to do that myself. Oh my goodness. But the, his students would regularly describe this experience. They would, he would, he would s- cite uh, an author that had been cited in the paper, and then the, he would continue the citation, and the student would kind of, you know, so he'd, he'd continue the quotation past where the person had quoted it, and the student kind of looked at him, and then he, Lewis would pull the book off the shelf, turn to the page number, and give it to the student, and it was right there on the page. He could, and, and then the other, the other thing that he would do regularly is he'd quote something, and the person would say, no, he, he would never say that, and Lewis said, yes, he would, and he'd get the book, open it to the page, and it would be exactly, he could quote verbatim from any book in his library on the page. That's just not natural. <laughs> He was simply phenomenally intelligent in every conceivable way, which makes his conversion all the more remarkable. His father had a lot of things going against him, but one of the things that was fantastic is he had a house full of books. And Lewis grew up loving to read. He once said that it was as easy to find a book in his house as it was to find a blade of grass in a field. There was just always another one. When he was quite young, he and his brother had to stay inside a ton because of influenza. We do tend to forget, since we've just been through a pandemic, that there was another pandemic at the beginning of the first <clears throat> World War era in the 20th century, and they were involved in that, so they had to stay home a lot. And when they stayed indoors, all he did was read with his brother or created an imaginary world. He and his brother created a world called Boxen, which I know you'll be shocked to hear, was a fantasy land run entirely by animals. That was when they were six and eight and on up. Simply an amazing man. All right, we all together so far? So that's just a word about his life. Um, It was a life of suffering and pain. It was a life of fullness, and it was a life of learning. Now let me say something to you about Lewis and his theology in general. So we're down here to number two. Lewis was the greatest apologist of the 20th century, and he had so many aspects of his theology that are brilliant. I only want to mention three for our purposes tonight. First, and I think the most important, is what I like to call an instinct for the center. This is his idea of mere Christianity, which should never be taken for granted. Lewis had this incredible ability uh, to keep the main thing the main thing. You all know that saying? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and then the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Uh, what, what is Yogi Berra saying? It's, a, it's amazing how much you can learn by observing. <laughs> it, it's that kind of a thing. Over and over again, whenever you're dealing with Lewis and when he's talking about Christian theology, he always stays in the center. My way of getting at this is the famous saying, in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And what you find again and again in Lewis is he just has an ability to stay in the middle of the field. So if you read something like Mere Christianity, it's just right down the middle of the plate. 
always keeping the main thing the main thing. He had an ability, because of his breadth of learning and his love to read, of really synthesizing the Christian tradition as a whole. And so he could always hit the center of the bullseye, no matter where he was. That's not a thing to take for granted. It is important to major on the majors. And Lewis was a genius at doing that. Number two, he had what I like to call a sanctified imagination. And I've told you about this before, but I want to emphasize it in particular tonight. One of the things you need to realize, in case you don't realize it as an Anglican, is you have a tremendous gift given to you in your liturgical heritage, which is as part of the weekly liturgy, you actually go up and get stuff. That is to say, bread and wine. And you actually get it in your hands, and you actually eat it, which means you actually say every week and as, as an act of individual and corporate worship that somehow you believe in a God who works through stuff. And Lewis's whole life, always from his early childhood, because he had to escape the pain of his mother and he had to escape his dysfunctional and mercurial father into that realm of books and into that imaginary land of, of uh, boxing, is he was always imagining what God could do. And the sanctified imagination is a Christian imagination which realizes that God can work through stuff of any kind, whether it's water or fields. And again and again, when you hear Lewis speak or when you see him write, he says this and that and this and that. And then he says, and here's an illustration. You think, how did he do that? (laughs) How did he come up with that story at that time to that person in that letter and make such a beautiful illustration? So you're at the end of um, the seven Chronicles of Narnia, and he's trying to talk about the new heaven and the new earth, and he says, the, the new heaven and the new earth is better and richer and fuller than heaven and earth. How do you even begin to talk about that? How do you even begin to make that make sense? I mean, in this book, which we're about to read, for those of you who started it, you may know that when the people get off the bus, they're ghosts, right? Remember, they're hollow, and you remember what happens when they step on the grass? It hurts their feet. So the grass, wherever, wherever they go in heaven, the grass is fuller and richer and deeper. And Lewis says, have you ever had the experience of looking at a mirror and then looking at a field behind you and, and this gorgeous rich field and then turning around again and looking at the mirror and all of a sudden you see the same field in the mirror but it's refracted sevenfold so that it's fuller and richer and deeper. And he says, heaven is like that. Now how does he do that? <laughs> It's because he's constantly evoking pictures and he's constantly sanctifying his imagination. So there's no such thing as an ordinary bird. There's no such thing as an ordinary tree. There's no such thing as an ordinary day for Lewis. It's a great image of what it means to be a Christian. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to have a sanctified imagination. And the last thing that I want to say about his theology in general, which is very important, is if you read Lewis, his whole life was permeated by a sense that this world is very, very um, quickly passing and that we are always to live this life in the light of the next one. You don't have to go any further than the Chronicles of Narnia, book one, and there's that wardrobe, and you just go straight into that other world, just through the wardrobe. So the, the, the distance between this world and the next and between this life and the next is paper thin. Here's Harry Blamers in his book, The Christian Mind. A Christian mind has a supernatural orientation, a mind that cultivates the eternal perspective and believes that the fact of heaven and the fact of hell are there 
and understands that all of creation, all of history, and all of humankind is under the sovereign control of the triune God. One of the places I'm most aware of the supernatural orientation of the Christian mind is at funerals. I sense a strange collision of perspectives cutting right through the sanctuary between those who believe death ends all and those who believe in eternal life. Well, Lewis was definitely on side two. Heaven and hell play a vital role in C.S. Lewis's thought and life throughout his life. One of my favorite vignettes, very simple one, he and his secretary happen to be in a funeral uh, and they go into a churchyard afterwards and they just happen to be talking and standing there and they're kind of walking in the, in the graveyard and they come across a, a gravestone, which you sometimes do, and you sort of look at what it says. And Lewis looks and it says, here lies an atheist all dressed up and nowhere to go. <laughs> and Lewis looks at his secretary and says, I bet he wishes now that that were true. That's just a typical story of the whole way that he thought in his life. Here's Thomas Howard, one of the great C.S. Lewis scars. There is a special kind of terror and sublimity when you read Lewis's fiction. You have the feeling that the story you are reading is only a small part of a titanic drama. And what you see on the stage begins and ends in vistas infinitely larger than the size of the stage that we can see. Lewis's fiction, you might say, reaches all the way to heaven and hell. In one of my favorite incidents in his life, in 1939, the war has been declared in September. For those of you who are uh, TV people and you're watching All Creatures, Great and Small, anybody watching All Creatures, uh, the most recent season had the declaration of the war. It was just amazing. I mean, I already knew it was coming. You, you, I mean, the whole show changes. The whole, when England declares the whole, you can just, this is just a little village way past London, way up north, you know, not too far from Scotland. And the whole village, everything changes when the war is declared. So the war has been declared. Lewis is still teaching in Oxford. He's been asked to preach in the pulpit of St. Mary, University Church of St. Mary the Virgin, October 1939. Hitler looms large. Here comes the Luftwaffe for the Blitz in London. And what does he preach on? Well, let me tell you. He says, and I quote, To a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. He's talking to a whole bunch of Oxford undergraduates. You must forgive me for that crude monosyllable. I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days do not like to mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know too that nearly all the references to the subject in the New Testament come from a single source, but then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it's St. Paul, but that is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are dominical. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must overcome our spiritual prudery and dare to mention them. In the same sermon, he later describes everyone present as, and I quote, creatures who are every moment advancing to heaven or hell. And he encourages his audience in the midst of war, right in the background, to retain an interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues. For those of you who know your history well, you may know, but you may not know, when the Luftwaffe came after London, which was terrible, did you know that um, by the end of the Blitz, one in six members of the population of London were homeless? It's a quite remarkable amount of damage that was done on a regular basis. But one of the things you may not know is there was a, a, 
a sense in Oxford that Oxford was next, or at least one of the top places that Luftwaffe might come after next. And that's actually one of the things that forms the background of that sermon. Um, there, there were, there's more than one hint in the literature about Hitler that he thought he might set up the new capital of the world in Oxford because it was so interesting to him as such a powerful center of learning and influence worldwide. So, that, so the, fa- the fact that he's preaching like that, he's sort of thinking to himself, it could actually bomb this. But what's so remarkable about that sermon is he says, keep learning. You ever thought about that? I mean, what he's basically saying is you all are here and you're worried and you're not able to concentrate on your studies because you think you're going to be drafted for the war, and that means you might die tomorrow. But actually, that's already true. (laughs) The fact that you might die tomorrow was true yesterday and it's true today. The only reason you're thinking about it more is because the war's here. So don't change your perspective because you think you might die tomorrow. Realize that you might die tomorrow is true and was always true. It's just the war is helping you get in touch with reality better. That's Lewis in a single story. All right, you all with me? All right, now, on to the eschatology. Now we're really getting to my favorite stuff. I want to say something about Lewis in terms of the way that he talks about human beings, and then I want to say something about Lewis, the way he talks about hell in general, and then we'll see how far I get, if I can get to uh, the actual book, to say a word about the book, but I'm not sure I will. All right, so number one, and this time I am going to write up here because I told you Lewis was a genius in, in touch with the history. What you need to realize is, big surprise, when it comes to Lewis, the, the big minds in the Christian tradition, the most influential person in the whole Western tradition is Augustine. And surprise, surprise, Lewis's understanding of human beings is fundamentally based on Augustine. And you have to understand this if you're going to understand the whole of his theology in general, and the great divorce in particular. So let me take you to the garden and that first sin. You remember the first sin. God says, you can do whatever you want, just don't mess with this tree, and you can have everything. And Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, which is a very valuable read, and I'd certainly encourage you to read it as part of this class, reflects on the fall of Adam and Eve, and what he notes is what Augustine notes, which is everybody tends to focus on the act, which is a fundamental act of pride and rebellion, and basically saying, I want to be king. I'm usurping the the realm and the prerogative of God. I want to be my own king. I want to be my own master, which of course is true. But what Augustine points out, and what Lewis is absolutely um, indispensably linked to as an understanding of sin is That's a superficial understanding of what happens in the story. It's absolutely true, it's just not deep enough. And so what Lewis and Augustine want you to do is just pause for a moment and reflect on what happens in the garden and what happens with Adam and Eve. And what what Augustine says is this, you need to think about what happens before they do what they do. So here's Augustine. The act of self-will on the part of the creature, we're all together, right, eating the fruit, which constitutes an utter falseness to its true creaturely position, is the only sin that can be conceived as the fall. But the difficulty of the first sin is, though it is very heinous, its consequences would not be so terrible unless something which a being free from the temptation of fallen man could have committed. The turning from God to self fulfills both conditions. It is a sin possible even to man in paradise because the mere existence of a self from the first 
includes the possibility of turning inward. So what he's saying, and it's very profound, is this. What you have to realize is there's an evil heart and an evil will that precedes the evil act. Human beings are created to live before God and for God and with God forever. And what Augustine says is what you need to realize is before Adam and Eve actually do it, they actually have to turn inward to themselves and say, well, you know, who said he gets to set the rules? Maybe Satan's right. Maybe we should have a little say in this. And what, what Augustine and Lewis are desperate to get you to understand is the only way that works before you do what you do is you have to turn inward to your own thoughts and start trusting your own inclinations and your own instincts, which means instead of curving up and out, which is what you've been doing your whole life in the way God created you, you, you turn down and in. You all see what I'm, t- what I'm saying? So once you unleash sin in the world... What you have to understand from Lewis's perspective is sin is radical self-cleaving. And I don't want you to forget that because when you meet the characters in this story, every character that you meet is going to be addicted to self-cleaving. That's not the question. The only question is exactly what is their self-cleaving to? And we'll get to that in just a second. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about sin and the way that it works is it's both being and action. It's an evil will and an evil heart as well as an evil act. That's point one. Point two, which he gets from Aquinas, is sin has a downward spiral, and it's addictive. And the more you sin, the harder it is not to sin. One of my favorite books of Lewis is A Preface to Paradise Lost. He was a great Milton scholar. And for those of you who know your Milton well, you may know that that book is about the fall and all that stuff. And um, Lewis is commenting in the book on the story of Adam and Eve, and it's remarkable how Milton portrays the story because he really slows down the film. And here's Lewis. At this point, Eve remembers God's warning that if the fruit is eaten, death will ensue. Memory and reason still operate in the sinful woman, but no longer as reliably as they were intended to do. Right, Because he says, in, in the, on the day that you eat of it, you will truly die. Everybody remember? Right? And there's three kinds of death in the Bible, right? There's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's eternal death, or the second death. So physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And eternal death, or the second death, is the separation of both the soul and the body from God forever, i.e. hell. And when he says on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He's talking about all three. That is to say, God. Now, what, he's, what, what Milton is doing is he's going inside Eve's psyche, and Eve is thinking, you know, that if I do this, I might die. And so, <clears throat> Lewis writing about what Milton portrays is that she starts having this festering thought, which is, um, well, if I'm going to die, then he, he's, he's with me. And I don't want him to be able to enjoy this without me because I'm the one that really matters. So here's Lewis. I'm not sure critics always notice the precise sin which Eve is now committing, yet there's no mystery about it. Its name in English is murder. You see what he's saying? Now, that's, that's an imaginative portrayal. That's not in Genesis. I just want us all to stay together. That's a literary portrayal. But, 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 but the point that I want you to notice is if you read Genesis carefully, what you realize very quickly is what Luther calls the gravitational pull of sin. 
So you're reading along, you get Adam and Eve, and then not very long after, you get Cain and Abel, which is what? It's what the philosophers call fratricide, right? Which is what? One brother murdering another brother. That's really bad. How did you go from one act to fratricide? That's, fratricide's really chaos. I mean, that's real evil. That's a level of a debasement and debauchery and debacle that's huge. And it seemed to happen so fast. We're only in Genesis 4, and we were just in Genesis 1, 2, 3. How did that happen so fast? And Luther says, because what sin does is once you sin once, it becomes easy to sin again, and you also start to get your reason distorted because the more you pull in on yourself, the more you, you not only flee from God, but you flee from reality. And so the second thing that you need to realize about Lewis is when he's going to portray these characters... He's going to portray characters which not only flee from God, but flee from reality. Here's Lewis again talking of Milton and Eve in his portrayal. It seems so quick. Each new element of folly, malice, and corruption seems to enter so unobtrusively, so naturally, that unless you're paying attention, it's hard to realize that you're watching the genesis of murder. Do you see what he says? He has another, in, in, in a screw tape, he says, uh, the path to hell is soft underfoot, gradual turnings. Um, murder is not necessary if cards will do the trick. A radical crime such as treachery starts very small, but the steps are the same. Pride serves as the starting point, then forgetfulness then ever-widening degrees of self-deception. And that's pretty remarkable self-deception, right? Eve's going to murder her husband because if she's going to die, then he can't enjoy it by himself without her <laughs> because she's indispensable. That's an amazing level of <laughs> self-deception, and it's only just happened so quickly, exactly the way that Genesis portrays it. All right, now, <clears throat> I get a real big kick out of Lewis's description of Satan in the same story, and <clears throat> this is one of my favorite lines in all of Lewis. He, he looks at not only Eve in the, in the preface to Paradise Lost, but he looks at Satan. And what he says about Satan, which, which is, I think, just utterly delightful, is he believes his own propaganda, which is one of my favorite lines in all of, all of Lewis. So <clears throat> Satan <clears throat> lived in a world of light and love, of song and feast and dance, and could find nothing more interesting to think of than his own prestige. And so Satan rebels through forgetfulness and self-deception and becomes, and I quote Lewis, more a lie than a liar, a personified non-person, a personified self-contradiction. What we see in Satan, says Lewis, is the horrible coexistence of a subtle and incessant intellectual activity with an incapacity to understand anything. This doom he has brought upon himself in order to avoid seeing the one thing that he has almost voluntarily incapacitating himself from seeing it all. And thus, throughout the poem, all Satan's torments come, in a sense, at his own bidding. And the divine judgment might be expressed in the words, Thy will be done. He says, and I quote, Evil thou be, be thou my good, and his prayer is granted. That is really savage stuff. In um, the... Uh, problem of pain, he says, when he's talking about hell, he says, there's only, at the end of the day, there's only two kind of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And what he's saying in that description of Satan there is, that's what you get with Satan is, you get God saying, well, if that's what you want, that's what you get. 
So you've got this image of um, sin in two senses. One is radical self-cleaving. That's the first thing. And the second is it, it deteriorates gravitationally over time and it calcifies the human heart so that if you sin, it becomes easier and easier and more habitual to sin and you become more prideful and more forgetful and it becomes harder to get out of your sin. And if you keep doing it, it gets harder and harder to do. And can I just say in passing, we all actually know this from 21st century culture because we live in a culture that knows something about addiction. And see, AA already, Narc Anonymous and AA, if you ever go to Al-Anon meetings, any of you go to AA meetings, I am powerless, right? Hi, hi, John. My, hi, my name is John. Hi, John. Right, I'm powerless. That's the first step. Not anything but the first step is I'm powerless. I'm addicted and I'm addicted to being addicted, and I can't get out of my addiction. That's where it starts. And that's the way that sin actually, sin is like that. The only question is, what are you addicted to? And every single portrait in The Great Divorce is a radical self-cleaving and a calcified addiction to something other than God, which is ultimately not going to make them happy, in which they have to give up. So that the human heart is an idol factory, and we have the capacity to build anything other than God, into God, if we're not careful. And that's what Lewis wants to put us in touch with, our incredible capacity to make wrong choices. All right, you all with me so far? All right, let me just say um, a word about the actual theology of hell quickly, just to, just to get it on the map, I think, um, if I can, which is, I want to say two things about it, because I like um, the problem of pain, and people don't read it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually quite good. So let me give you um, Lewis's theology of hell in his own words <clears throat> in two directions. <clears throat> he says this, the brutal fact has to be confronted. This is, I'm quoting now, so I'm in my last point on eschatology. I'm past sin as self-cleaving and sin as calcified, addictive self-forgetful behavior. Now I'm actually talking about hell. The first thing is you, you have to deal with it. And he says there's two reasons you have to deal with it. But before he says that, he says, and I love this line, there is no doctrine I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. But I can't. Why? <clears throat> two reasons. First is a basic issue of authority. Eternal punishment has the full support of Scripture and specifically of our Lord's own words and has always been held by Christendom. Now, for those of you who've gotten into the book, you may remember that the book begins with a quote from George MacDonald. And C.S. Lewis was influenced by George MacDonald more than any other person except Christ. He says that himself. Nobody was closer to the figure of Christ other than Christ, than George MacDonald. And nobody was more influential, which is why George MacDonald is quoted in every one of his books. What you may not know, and what I want you to know, is George MacDonald was a universalist. Right? Now, you know what universalism is. This is one of the things we're going to confront in the class. Universalism is the belief that it's impossible for anyone not to be saved. Did you notice how I said that? I said it as a double negative. Or, putting it the other way around, it is absolutely insistent on God's part that everybody will be saved no matter what you want. That's the doctrine of universalism, right? It's very, very prominent in the Western church of which you and I are part. One of the easiest ways to find out how prominent it is is start talking about hell. <laughs> and people freak out. So here's the question. If 
McDonald was the most influential person other than Jesus for Lewis, and McDonald was a universalist. Why wasn't, why wasn't Lewis a universalist? You see what I'm asking? And I have an unpublished letter in my thesis that I came across where he says very clearly, I would, I would love to be with McDonald on this point. The problem is I have it on a higher authority, <laughs> namely our Lord himself. It has the full support of Scripture, and specifically of our Lord's own words, it has always been held by Christendom. <clears throat> it is overwhelmingly based on the teaching of Christ. Jesus says more about hell in Scripture, I've told you this before in a recent sermon, than anybody else. A second support <clears throat> for the importance of the doctrine of hell and the fact that you've got to take it seriously is from the nature of human choice. And this is one of the things I think we can get in touch with in the 20th century. Choices matter, decisions have consequences. Some acts which were apparently significant at the time have a large and uncertain unforeseen impact. And here's Lewis's own language to speak about the importance of choice. If life is a game, it must be possible to lose it. Now listen carefully to the way that he reasons. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make the surrender but himself, and he may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all would be saved. See, that's his friend McDonald's. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can this supremely voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, my reason replies, how if they will not give in? Now, if we had time, I'd take you to the, back to the last battle, which is the seventh of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I'd take you to the dwarfs. Anybody remember the dwarfs in, in book seven? The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. They're the classic self-encircled contradictory. They, they, they literally, at the end of the story, have Aslan right in front of them, literally right in front of them, and they can't see him. Literally. And the whole point is, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs is like a satanic chorus. It's actually used four times in that one book because Lewis wants you to understand that if God is going to create a human being that's free to reject him, not even God can contradict a contradiction. And this is a very important idea that he got from Aquinas. My way of stating it, and this is Lewis's in another essay, which I like to quote, is two times two isn't five even for God. That's a very helpful idea. That is to say, not even God can do the inherently impossible. And what he's trying to get you to understand is this. God can't create a, a being that's free to rebel against him that's not free to rebel against him. Because it's in the nature of the creation itself that that's a possibility. The possibility of hell is inherent in creation. That's why that word death that I mentioned to you includes all three kinds. The possibility of hell is incipient in creation itself, because if you create people free to be in union with God and spiritual um, hunger is part of what the, is at the core of them, and human beings are spirit, and those who uh, worship God worship Him in spirit and in truth. If that's the way we're put together, then we have a capacity to choose for or against God. And Lewis is saying, Don't you realize what you're saying? The only way you can get all these people that you claim will be saved to be saved is if they want to be saved, and if you're paying attention, and you watch the way human behavior works over time, the problem is people radically self-cleave to things that aren't God, and they don't want to be saved. So not even God can save them. 
By the way, as we go flying by also, this is typical of Lewis, um, he got this brilliant idea from Dante, which we, we may or may not bring into the class, but this is at the heart of Inferno. Inferno is just one big, incredibly scary portrayal of Galatians 6. You remember this little throwaway line in Galatians 6? As you sow, so also shall you reap. If you sow physically, you shall reap physically. If you sow spiritually, you will reap spiritually. If you sow eternally, you will reap eternally. And when you get to Inferno, what's so scary about it is people who are addicted to food here, you you get to hell and they're chasing food exactly the way that they lived here. They're still trying to go on a diet because it's the most important thing. They're still trying to avoid cream puffs. That's the obsession. And, you, and you, you look at that and you say, oh, that's just really terrible. Who would ever want to do that? And the point is, that's their obsession. It may not be your obsession, but you have something in your life which, if you don't get rid of it, will itself become hell for you because it's a thing that will self-cleave to you and you will self-cleave to it and it can take you away from God into eternity. That's the heart of the idea of the book. All right, I'm almost done. Let me say just a word about the actual book and then I'll stop for questions, just to give you a feel for the introduction. So um, what I want to say about the actual book itself is, let me just remind you of the context. So we're in 44 and 45 when this is being written, right? So Lewis has actually become a Christian. His popularizing phase has, has really launched. He's written the screw tape letters, but don't forget that World War II is happening. Uh, the Blitz is happening. Um, he's, he, he desperately wanted to be a soldier in World War II, and they wouldn't have him. They would have his older brother, but they, would, they wouldn't have him. So he was, he was drafted to help out the RAF chaplaincy. How'd you like to do that? You want to talk about a horrible job. Um, the RAF uh, life expectancy at one point in England in the Second World War was six weeks. That was the average life expectancy of, the, of a member of the RAF. So those chaplains had it hard, and Lewis had to be a chaplain and had to share with those guys before they got on the plane for the next bombing mission. Ready, set, go. And he didn't find it easy. So he's writing this against the backdrop of Hitler and uh, Mussolini and all of that and the bombing. Um, one of the things I sometimes think about is that he gave, the BBC is the one who got him to give the talks on the radio that eventually became Mere Christianity. And there's a picture of the BBC headquarters, what was left of it. after, And all around it is just blown to smithereens, and Lewis had to climb over things just to get to the radio studio at the BBC during the Blitz to give the radio talk. So this is the background. This is a background of incredible evil and incredible suffering. So don't, don't forget that when you actually read it. Now, this book actually didn't have this as its title when he first published it. It was published as a series of chapters in an Anglican publication called The Guardian, which doesn't exist anymore. It's just a little Anglican newspaper, and he published one chapter at a time. And when he finished, he published it as a book, and it was called um, Who Goes Home? That was the original title. And in addition to Who Goes Home, it had a colon, and it said a fantasy. So that was the original title. Now, if you look at your book, it has a different title, which is the one it had from 1946 on. And it's called a, The Great Divorce, colon, A Dream. And what I want to make sure that we all understand as we begin this class is, and you'll see this in the preface, Lewis is writing what he calls a supposal. Did you all hear that word? 
S-U-P-P-O-S-A-L. So it's a hypothetical fancy. He's painting a picture to try to get you in touch with the power of human choice and the incredible capacity that we have to go in different directions depending on our choices, and they will end us up in one of two eternal places. And there's only two eternal places, and there's no way that you can marry the two of them. Uh, One of the people that Lewis is reflecting in this book is William Blake, who wrote a a very bizarre book before that Lewis had read and said all of his life, he said, I I can never really figure out what he was talking about. But basically, um, Blake tried to say, uh, human beings can have it all. You can have heaven and hell and everything in between. And Lewis wrote this in part to say, no, you can't. (laughs) You actually can't do that. There actually are choices. There's a difference between good and evil. There's a difference between God and the devil. And they're ultimately either or decisions which really have eternal significance. So the reason why he wrote it was to try to paint a picture to get you in touch with it. But you can't build a theology based on the story unless you're really careful in the way that you do it because it's a supposal. Everybody with me so far? So it's, it's, a, it's a hypothetical. So for example, one of the things that drives me up a wall about Lewis's theology is like I run into people every once in a while and say, oh, you see, Lewis believed that people get a second chance after death to choose for God. Well, not actually, no. That's not what Lewis actually says. But you have to know the book and you have to know his theology and you have to know what he's doing really carefully or you can begin to get that idea because it's a supposal. And what you get in this book is really fascinating. You get... You get this picture, and A.N. Wilson says, and A.N. Wilson was no friend of C.S. Lewis, but in his biography he says, quote, the great divorce is something approaching a masterpiece. I think that's right. I think it's his best book. Of all the books that he wrote, I think it's his best. So you get this, this rainy town, and there's all these people waiting for the bus, and there's no bus. And they're all, they all fight with each other, and they're all mean to each other, and they're all waiting for the bus. This is the way the book begins. It's like, what in the world is he doing? And the bus doesn't even come, and they're all fighting and cavilling and chirping and carping and all this stuff. And uh, when the bus comes, the bus is this spectacularly beautiful bus. It's beautiful, and it's shiny. And not only that, there's lots of room, so there's no need to fight. And everybody gets on the bus, and they go to this other place. And what you realize is that when they get to the other place... And, Lewis gets on the bus, there's plenty of room for everybody, and when they get to the place where they're going, it's clear that the bus was in hell, and now it's going to heaven, and when they get off the bus, um, the first thing, and of course the bus goes through this beautiful, um, spectacular valley, and it gets to this beautiful foot of this mountain, and everything is splendid, this is typical Lewis um, sanctified imagination, for those of you who are into this sort of thing, uh, the, transcend- the three transcendentals are truth, beauty, and goodness, that's the heart of medieval theology. And he's always talking about truth, beauty. So they get to this place of truth, beauty, and goodness, and the people are kind of reluctant to get off the bus, and they get off the bus, and one of the things Lewis realizes is they're actually quite ghastly to look at, and they're kind of hollow. They're kind of ghosts. It's kind of yucky. And when they get off the bus, there's a person, who's a, they're, they're, it's hard to know what they are, but they're kind of bright spirits, maybe even angelic beings, And what you realize is the person who comes to meet them when they get off the bus is somebody in this life who knew them when they were on earth. So all the people that come to meet the people who get off the bus are people that knew them when they were here. And you have all these conversations with all these people, and the book is just a series of conversations about what happens. And what's so terrifying about the book is 
almost every single one of the people who get off the bus, and by the way, the land is so beautiful that, remember, the grass hurts their feet. That's how beautiful it is. And they don't want to stay because they're clinging to something that isn't God. They're radically self-cleaving. Now, they're clinging to all sorts of things, as we'll see. And so what Lewis wants us to do is to focus on the importance of our own discipleship in the light of eternity. All right, that's it. Done. So just a few thoughts. It's a good book. It should, it should be a really fun class, really. It's great to study a book like this. Most parishes never do, it's a, and especially since it's his best book. All right, questions or comments from you, and we'll try to repeat them for the tape. It's very important. Things that struck you, things that you didn't understand, don't be bashful. There's over 100, so somebody has something to say, I know. Yes, sir, go ahead. Right. Right. So the question is, um, at multiple times in the book, you, you see this kind of fork idea of these two paths, and Lewis says if you, if you take a path, the only way forward is to go back. And, you want to, and, and that, that's true at that path and that path, and it, keep, it keeps happening. And what Lewis is trying to do is illustrate repentance, and he, one of the things he uses, this is typical of his great imaginary and illustrative powers, he says, if you're on a tr- at a train station and you get on the wrong train and it starts moving, you're not going to get where you need to go. <laughs> but in order to get where you need to go, the first thing you need to do is get off the wrong train. And that's what, that's what that is trying to illustrate. You, ha- you actually have to turn back to the fork you were on in order to, to put your, and, and say, I made the wrong choice. I need to go back to where I was. And that, that's the only way. And that's the call. Every single person in all these conversations is invited to repent from the idolatry that they're addicted to. And it doesn't matter how hard most of the people try, and they try really hard. <laughs> They won't do it. Yes, sir. Right. Yep. Right. Right. So, and it's the same illustration, just just a different image, but... If you're doing a math sum and you make a mistake, you can't just keep going because once, once you're off, you're off. So you've got to go back. Yep. And that's, that's the idea. You ha- there, there has to be a turning, and uh, the more addicted you are, the harder the turning is. And the longer it goes on, the harding, harder doing the turning becomes, which is why uh, little things are not little things. By the way, for those of you who screw tape letters people... Um, one of the things I love about that book is the, it, it's, a, it's amazing the little teeny things that happen in that house 
that drive that guy crazy. And Lewis says at one point, he said, some, in some relationships, there's something that someone close to you can do that can literally drive you almost nuts. And then he says this, he says, there's a look that someone can give you that's almost worse than a blow in the face. And there isn't anybody here that doesn't know what, <laughs> what he's talking about. And the, po- the point is, he's trying to get, Wormwood's trying to get his nephew to, to get the Christian uh, to, ha- to have his mom look at him that way. Because <laughs> if he does that, he's sunk because he's going to want to get back at his mom. And even a grumble, if you're not careful, can lead you all the way to hell. Other comments or questions? Yes, please. Go ahead. Um, <coughs> it, it was in basically 1929. So he was at it, he was at it a while. Yes, yes, th- those books. He was he'd written other books, but those books, yeah, yeah. Addison's Walk, probably 1929, disputed by some scholars, but probably then. Yes. Lauren. Yeah. In the in the new world. Okay, so it's sort of a two-part question. So um, it would, would the fall have happened if Satan wasn't there? That's the first question. And then if it, if it wouldn't have, then isn't it inherently possible that there could be a fall in the new heaven and the new earth? Is that... Okay, so the hard, the hard part with... I mean, I can't... It, in a sense, it's a hypothetical, like what would have happened if Washington didn't cross the Potomac. But... It, 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 it's the combination of the two. It's definitely, I mean, the, th- the thing that is important about Satan is he wants to talk theology. And he puts, it's brilliant because he puts Eve in a position where she has to defend herself against God. And that's exactly what he's trying to tempt her to do, is to turn inward. But she doesn't have to. So says the Christian tradition. Of course, then people get mad and say, well, where did Satan come from? <laughs> and of course, then he fell. So then the question is, who tempted him? <laughs> and the answer, so far as we can tell, and we don't have a lot of information, is it, it was inherent in the nature of his createdness as an angelic being, but there was no tempter in his case. So it can happen without a tempter. But Eve definitely was assisted. You can debate the degree to which. But you can't say the devil made me do it at the end of the scene. Yes, sir. Right. Okay, so well, I'm, I'm glad you asked me this because I want to make sure you, we get the quote in exactly his words. This is from his book, The Root of the Righteous. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And the question was, uh, who caused the hurt? Is that what the question was? And this, this is another one of these bifurcated um, answers. The, the, short, the short answer is um, God's, God's involved in it, 
but it's an inherent risk in the nature of the world that he made. So <clears throat> what you get, let, let's take an example from the New Testament. Um, the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels, right? But there's only one Gospel where it says this. It says, um, give him five loaves and two fish. And then it says, this he said to test him. That's only in one of the four versions. So <clears throat> what was, was, it, was it a test? Yes. But James says, um, God tempts no one, right? So God doesn't tempt, but God does test. Even Jesus tested. Very clearly, he tested his disciples in that version of that scene. So the answer is, it's God directly or indirectly, depending on the situation. But never tempting, only testing. Does that help? I mean, you can think about, I think Joseph is a good story for that. I mean, you, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So, I mean, who, who caused the pain in Joseph's life? He had very little to do with it, in a sense. I mean, you can, you can blame his ridiculous um, initial problems on the fact that he really wasn't very discerning about sharing his dreams with his fellow family members. And we could we get into debate about that. But, but stuff like selling him, you know, putting him at the bottom of a pit and selling him as a slave and all that, and the fact that he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's not his fault. So, but, but the thing is, God's over all that. I mean, in prison, he's, he's stuck there for two years, right? He says to the baker, you're supposed to remember me, and he forgets him. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of pain in that story, and God's overreaching and overruling it. But I don't think most of it is caused by God. It's things that God's using. But I do, I do think you have to take that quote from Tozer seriously. By the way, it's true of our Lord also, isn't it? In terms of Gethsemane. I mean, we, we, we often bypass that, but I've, I've pointed out to more, more than once, that's a really crucial scene in Jesus' life. And there's an enormous amount of personal, spiritual, and emotional pain, and he can't go around it. He's got to go through it. So um, by the time you get to the cross, it's a very wounded broken heart that's up there, and I don't think that's an accident either. It's, it's just a, a matter of Christian history that if you read the lives of the saints, it's true of all of them. That's why it's so profound. But the important thing about the quote is not to quote it inaccurately and not to seek suffering, right? So that, I, oh good, I want to be used by God greatly, so I'll get in more pain. That's not, that's not the, the idea, the theology behind it. The really challenging thing is when you go through stuff that's difficult, to, to, to find a way to pray and to turn it Godward. And boy, that is hard. And that's why I find Lewis so remarkable. It's because when you add it all up, I mean, it's hard enough to lose your dog and your mom and you're not yet 10, but it just keeps going and going and going. And look at what God accomplished through him. It's remarkable. There's a real perseverance there that's deeply admirable. Go ahead. Well, one of the ways he did it was to write about it and to share about it, which is, which is why I'm always, I've always, and this is a Fitz Allison insight, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that um, we are strengthened with the strength of those who suffered in similar situations to the way that we are. The only people that can really encourage somebody whose family member has Alzheimer's is somebody else 
whose family member has Alzheimer's, which is why those support groups are so indispensable. And uh, the, the, the fact is that he got with some people that helped him process his grief. But the first thing he did is write about it, which is where you get the book from. And that actually helped him. It didn't get him super far, but it started the journey. And that's important. The, the, the worst thing you can do is not talk about it. But what I never tire of pointing out is everybody goes at their own pace. My, uh, my oldest daughter right now has a friend of hers who's in her 30s. She's a mother of two children under five, and she's got horrendous cancer. And I'm going absolutely nuts because she's trying so hard to help her friend, but, but she really wants her friend to process it the way she would process it <laughs> at her pace. And I keep trying to say to her that the problem is she, it's, she has to do it as her, and you're not her. And I, it doesn't matter what I try, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm really praying that she'll be able to process it. And it's a terrible situation. But that's, that's, the, that's the difficulty with grief is, grief is always individuated, always. And it's so difficult because it seems endless. I say this to people all the time. The, the, the key idea of grief is it's bounded. There's always an edge. But the problem is when you're in the midst of it, you can't see the edge, you can't feel the edge. It feels like it just goes on and on. And it's a horrible, horrible experience. Other comments or questions? So for next time, can you read the preface and the first chapter? Can we do that? Is that okay, Paul? Is that... And do, and do read the preface, because it was, it was written, the preface and the beginning quotation and the first chapter would be great. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.